you have your copy of the Word of God, I want to invite you to open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. In John, chapter 6, we will begin this morning in verse 22 <clears throat> and go through verse 40. It's somewhat of a, a lengthy passage, but it's so packed with wonderful, uh, relevant truth for our lives as we see Christ encountering the crowds that were, uh, that were following Him and seeking after Him. But before we read the text, let us, uh, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And Father, that you would give us clear insight into your word, that you would speak truth into our lives, into our hearts. God, that you would help us to comprehend the truth of your word so that you might, by your Holy Spirit, apply it to our lives. And I pray, Lord, that each of us would be open to your counsel and your word today. And Lord, that even as we celebrate uh, this morning the proclamation of your word, the, the, the reading of your word, that we would look forward as well to the, uh, the participation around the table uh, and all centered around you, Lord Jesus, this morning. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The title of the message this morning is uh, Hungering for Christ. Hungering for Christ. And in verses 22 through 40, uh, we see Jesus making this wonderful proclamation. It's called the Bread of Life Discourse. And this is really a discourse where Jesus, it kind of builds up in verse 35 to this climax of Jesus saying, I am the bread of of life. But in verses 22 through 25, we kind of have a, a, a little bit of a, uh, a background. So I'm going to begin by, uh, by reading in verse 22. The next day, the crowd stood on the other side of the sea. They saw that there was no other small boat there except the one that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him in verse 30, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. And as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the bread, true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. 
But I said to you that you've seen, that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. This passage really deals with what the crowd is approaching and and seeking Jesus for, those reasons that they are seeking after Christ, and then Christ coming and, and really giving them a uh, well giving them a deeper meaning about this this miracle that he has just performed in multiplying bread to feed the 5000 and so in coming he's saying and making this claim I am the bread of life so as we look at this passage and our challenge with the the title of hungering for Christ I, I want us to to recognize that when we come to Christ we come as those who hunger for, we, we ought to come, we must come as those who hunger for the life that only he can give. And in this passage, Jesus is saying that, or John is telling us that Jesus is God's provision of life to the world. That's really the central idea of what John is communic- communicating to us in this passage. One night as a family was finishing dinner, Mike Benson noticed six green beans that were left on his daughter's plate. Ordinarily, it wouldn't bother him to see this, but he was a little bit irked that night, and he said to his his young daughter, his eight-year-old daughter, eat your green beans. And she replied, I'm full to the top, Daddy. And he he responded, you won't pop. (laughs) She said, yes, I'm going to pop. He said, risk it. It'll be okay. You won't pop. Dad, I can't eat another bite, she said. Mike knew the dessert that was her favorite, pumpkin pie squares, is what they were going to be serving for dessert that night. So he asked, would you like a double helping of pumpkin pie squares with two dollops of whipped cream on top? That sounds great, she said, as she pushed her plate away. And he asked, how can you have room for a double helping of pumpkin pie squares with two dollops of whipped cream and not have room for six measly green beans Then she stood up and she looked at him and she said, pointing to her belly, this part is my vegetable stomach. This is my meat stomach. And they're both full to the top, but this is my dessert stomach and it's empty. She said, I'm ready for dessert. You know, what we eat reveals what we're hungry for, doesn't it? This discourse reveals a very similar truth about man's condition without Christ. And I think the truth is this. What we hunger for drives our pursuits in life. What we hunger for drives our pursuits in life. You see, the context of this passage is Passover. It's the annual Jewish celebration of deliverance from Egypt. And the people, the Jews, would all congregate to Jerusalem at this particular time of the year. And they would celebrate what God had done in delivering them out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. In fact, chapter 6 here, verse 59, tells us that they were in the synagogue at Capernaum. Jesus was teaching them in the synagogue. 
And at the beginning of chapter 6, as I alluded to earlier, Jesus had fed the 5,000 people, verses 1 through 15. He had taken five loaves and two fish and multiplied them to feed 5,000 people. It was a miracle. It was a sign that Christ performed in order to point to the glory of the Father, to point that he was the one who had been sent by the Father. After that, he had dismissed the riotous crowd and he sent his disciples across the sea. And then we saw last week, they were in the midst of the sea. The storm came upon them and Jesus in the middle of the night comes to them walking on water, showing his sovereignty even over creation, even over the water. And he delivers them safely from the storm to the other side of the sea. And the next day, the crowds get up and they begin looking, where is he at? Where'd he go? He didn't get in the boat with his disciples. So they all get in boats, probably boats that had been pushed over the night before through the storm. They get in boats and they head across the sea and they find him there. And when they found him, that question in verse 25, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now, he doesn't answer their question immediately in this text. But have you ever noticed that there really are two realities that are present in Christ's teaching? One is, one is a temporal reality, right? It's the kingdom of the world. He's always teaching about what's happening in, in kind of the, the kingdom of the world and, and really highlighting that these things will pass away. But then there's a second reality. It's the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. These are the eternal things, the things that will endure forever. And he's always, in his teaching, he's always showing us the, the call to forsake the kingdom of the world and to follow the kingdom of God through submitting to him. And Jesus' ministry is really grounded in this second reality, the kingdom of God. His mission is to bring the kingdom of God to earth as it is in heaven, right? That's That's what he taught his disciples to pray. And this is why Jesus continually calls people and says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. His call is to all who hear, they would, that they would forsake the kingdom of the world and submit to The kingdom of God. And so instead of answering their question, the first thing we see Jesus doing is we see him challenging the motives of the crowd in verses 26 through 29. We see him come and and, and instead of answering their question directly, he begins challenging the motives of the crowd. In verse 26, it reveals a lot about the spiritual condition of the crowd. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but why? Because you ate the loaves and you were filled. Jesus is really confronting a heart issue within the people, within the crowd. They saw a miracle that Jesus performed. 6.14 tells us, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, Truly, this is the prophet, right? Who has come into the world. They, They saw the miracle that he had performed. but they missed the point of it. And if they, if they had truly seen, if they had really seen what Christ was showing them in the miracle, they would have seen the display of God's glory through Christ. And instead of only their stomachs being filled with bread, their hearts would have truly been filled with the love of God. Their hearts truly would have been filled with eternal, enduring filling, unlike their stomachs, because now they're seeking more food, right? That which they put in their bellies, it's gone. We all experience that. We eat, we get so full, especially maybe around Thanksgiving or Christmas time. We eat so much, we get so full, and then a few hours later, we are 
hungry again. And so I, I think I think this passage this morning is incredibly instructive and and relevant for us where we are today, whether whether we're disciples of Christ or whether we're ones who've not yet believed in Christ. What we see is is in this passage, Jesus challenges the crowd. He challenges them by saying, first, their desire for the physical has blinded them from seeing their need for the spiritual here in verse 26. Their desire for the physical has blinded them from seeing their need for the spiritual. You see, their desires for a full stomach. But their desire for a full stomach has dulled their spiritual eyes. You know, we can understand this truth in a, in really a, in a much greater way, even. The essence of what, this is the essence of what Moses tells the people in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. When they're going into the promised land. He tells them, then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He'll bring you there to give you great and splendid cities, listen, which you didn't build, and houses full of good things which you didn't fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied, then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. It speaks to man's condition, especially with the temptation to arrive at a place of comfort and contentment and grow spiritually dull. In Deuteronomy 8.3, it says, He humbled you and let you be hungry, those who they were traveling in the wilderness for those 40 years, wondering... He fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone. Listen, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Right? This is the point. Their desire for the physical has blinded them from seeing their need for the spiritual in relation to Christ. They were seeking him because they had eaten loaves and they were filled. This principle is true on on so many levels. We recognize from passages like 1 Corinthians one twenty three that the message of the gospel is a stumbling block, right? It says, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. Because their eyes are blinded, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And this is exactly where the crowd is, blinded from the spiritual reality of their need for Christ. They are blinded from this reality. They can't see it. Their eyes, their minds have been blinded. And for the disciple of Christ, though, we too, we must, be, we must be guarded as well. You see an example in Acts chapter 5, right? Ananias and Sapphira, members of the church at Jerusalem. They see what Barnabas has done, the son of encouragement. He's gone and he's sold a tract of land. He's brought the money. He's laid it at the apostles' feet. This is a glorious thing. It points to God. It shows, it shows all those that God is able to provide. Well, what do Ananias and Sapphira do? They... They go and likewise sell a track of land, except they lie to God and they hold back some for themselves. They were greedy. They 
They wanted the praise of men. They wanted the glory of men for themselves. They, they wanted the position of honor. They wanted to be known like Barnabas as one who had made this great sacrifice. And so they brought and they laid a portion. But giving the understanding that they had brought everything before the apostle and laid it at his feet. And so this is the idea of how the physical can blind us from the spiritual reality of our need for Christ and fellowship with Christ and, and walking with Christ. How true it is that when we have full stomachs, our eyes are dull, right? Remember Spurgeon often, he said that in reading Spurgeon, he said that he would never want to eat to the point of, of dullness. Point being, Jesus tells the crowd, you seek me, Because your stomachs were filled and not your hearts. And the question I would ask us this morning is, are we seeking Christ because of who he is? Who he has revealed himself to be? Or are we seeking Christ for some other reason that has nothing to do with who he has revealed himself to be? But has everything to do possibly with, with man's approach to religion? Maybe with feeling good about ourselves or, or giving ourselves a pat on the back or an emotional experience or, or people begin to seek Christ because they want healing or people begin to seek Christ because they're in a desperate situation and, and, and they, need, they need deliverance. And so they think, well, I'll just go ahead and seek Christ for this time. I'll make this commitment. I'll make this covenant with God. But, but the real intention of the heart is not to live that out, right? So the question I would ask us to consider is, are we... Seeking Christ for who he is or for some other reason this morning. Secondly, we see evidenced in the crowd in verse 27, their work for the physical hindered their work of the spiritual. Look at what they say in verse 27. Do not work for Jesus says, do not work for the food which perishes, but for food which endures to eternal life. They were spending their efforts to obtain food, which only satisfied them temporarily, while Jesus was revealing food that would satisfy them eternally. Now, I I need to make the disclaimer here that uh, bread was a staple of life. Unless you're a vegetarian or vegan, it's like meat today. I mean, it's a staple, right? It, It gives us energy and strength. I know this is telling for me, but personally, I like to have meat at every meal. It's just, it's something that I feel like I need and I, I crave. I, I want something of substance, right? But it's the same for, for in this day. Bread, bread is, I mean, bread was the sustenance they needed to continue to live. I mean, it was the regular part of every diet. I mean, bread was the staple. They didn't have anything else. They had bread to eat. And so when Christ comes telling them, don't work for food which perishes, but for food which endures to eternal life. We need to understand what he's saying. And I think what he's saying to us is the disciple of Christ can't allow the physical wants of this life to dictate our spiritual growth in Christ. It doesn't matter what culture a person lives in, from the poorest to the wealthiest cultures, the issue of materialism is universal. I remember being in Uganda teaching a group of pastors at one of the pastor's conferences and 
I asked about materialism, and I was trying to make a point of application, and, but I, I wasn't sure if it was a problem in their culture. And so I asked the question. I said, is materialism a, a problem in your local congregations? And they overwhelmingly said, yes, it's a huge problem. You know, this really kind of goes to the heart of the issue with, man, we, we are materialistically driven oftentimes. We seek to have the satisfaction of the physical, but oftentimes that pursuit of, of physical satisfaction, it hinders us in our work of the spiritual and working and serving Christ. We often allow the material things of life to dictate who we are. We attach a level of identity to them instead of allowing a relationship with Christ to define our identity. And so he says in verse 27, work for food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. This is food that that will be given to you. In other words, what's the work? We'll see in a minute. The work is to believe But Jesus is saying, instead of working for food to meet those temporal needs, come to me. And I'll give you the food which meets your eternal needs. I'll give you that food that can only be found in knowing and believing in me. Jesus says, for the Father, God has set his seal on me. God has placed his seal. In other words, he's, he's certified that Jesus is the agent. Jesus is claiming that he is the one who can come and who can give eternal life. That means for you and I that Jesus is the one that gives us hope. He is the one that gives us true life, true enduring life. I would ask us this morning as we consider how the crowd was working for the physical and it hindered their work of the spiritual, is there, is there some material gain that we are pursuing in life at the expense of knowing and pursuing Christ? Is there some material gain that is holding us back from truly walking in fellowship with Christ and truly knowing Christ? Thirdly, I would encourage us to see that the crowd believed they had to earn eternal life. They believed they had to earn eternal life in verses 28 and 29. Therefore, they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said, this is the work of God that you believe. You see, it really hasn't changed today. Many, many believe that they must earn salvation. And the question they ask is, what shall, we, what shall we do to work the works of God? Right? Surely there are many. That's the mentality. There must be, there must be many things that we have to do in order to work the works of God, in order to earn God's favor. And Jesus answers the question by saying, this is the work. The work is that you believe in him whom he has sent. It's all about Christ. He's pointing to himself. Believe. Believe is the key word that's connected to Christ's mission. Believe that he's come. Believe that God gives life to the world through this one, through Christ. And so the work of God is the blessing of faith. And it really requires no work at all on our part, at least from the perspective that we would think of work. It requires believing. It requires committing my life to following Christ. 
And here's where the power of walking and believing in Christ and the power of Him giving us life comes into play. It's as we walk in our daily life and as we, as we encounter temptation, as we, as we seek to follow Him and carry out His will, then we begin to recognize that, that God has empowered us and He has filled us and He gives us the ability to live for Him. He gives us the strength to follow Him. And it's nothing that we have to do to earn. Instead, it's His grace that is given to us. He gives us His grace. In fact, He says, The food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man gives to you. He gives it to you. And so Jesus challenges the motives of the crowd. And I would invite us to consider and to think about our own motives as we come to Christ. Are there things that are hindering us or things that are keeping us from following Christ with all of our commitment. Have we misunderstood the offer of bread, the work that Christ has done in our life? Have we misunderstood the things that Christ has been doing in our lives, teaching us and showing us how to follow Him? Have we misunderstood what He is calling us to? Secondly, I think we see this morning the peril of unbelief evidenced in the crowd as well. The peril or the danger of of unbelief, beginning in verse 30. They, they said to him, What then do you do for a sign after hearing this, so that we may see and we may believe? And this highlighted, ironically, the way that the crowd responded to Christ was, was ironic. It was, it was a highlight of, of their misunderstanding. Because the crowd says, believing is the result of seeing. That's, that's where they're at. They're saying, believing is the result of seeing. And so they ask him to perform this sign so that they may see and believe. But you know, Jesus had performed the sign the day before. He had multiplied the, the five loaves and two fish in order to feed the 5,000 people. And yet they failed to see his identity through the sign the reason they failed was because they were looking to have their earthly needs met instead of listening to what God was trying to teach them. In verses 31 through 33, the, the crowd shares their wrong understanding of, of Moses providing manna in the wilderness, where they say, Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, in correcting them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who's given you the bread out of heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. And so what is this true bread that has come out of heaven? And the true bread is the bread that Christ gives. It is Christ himself coming down out of heaven in the incarnation. So in verse 34, the crowd, we see they misunderstand what Christ is saying to them. Just like the woman at the well, they said, Lord, give us this bread. Always give us this bread. She, she comes and she finds that Christ is there offering living water at the well. And she says, Lord, give me this water. I want this living water that will cause me to never thirst again. And so the crowd says, we, we want this bread. We want this eternal, or we want this satisfaction that you're talking about. In verse 36, he tells them, you've seen me and yet you don't believe. In other words, you've seen it, yet you, you haven't believed in what has been laid before you. I want you to know that 
The world says a similar thing as the crowd here. That seeing is believing. In other words, show me and I'll believe. But the reality is we'll, we'll never see enough signs that will make us believe apart from our spiritual eyes being opened. And that's really where Jesus is taking the crowd. Back in verse 44 of chapter 6, it says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. point is that God must open the eyes for them to see and for them to really understand. In Luke 16, 19, there's a, um, there's a parable of the rich man and, and Lazarus. And the rich man would live in his nice, comfortable house wearing his fine linens. And the poor man, Lazarus, would always wait outside of the gate begging for crumbs from the rich man. And in the midst of his uh, begging and in the midst of their two lives, they both passed away in a relatively short period of time. And the parable tells us that the rich man was in Hades, lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and saw Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. bosom. And he asked him, he said, would you send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and to just touch the tip of my tongue? And Abraham says, no, I, I won't do it. Abraham told him, remember during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus' bad things, but now he's being comforted here, and you are in agony. And then the rich man said, well, well, I, I beg you that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he can warn them so they won't come to this place of torment. But Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear the prophet. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham. The rich man said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. You see, the the point is simple. The crowd says believing is the result of seeing. You know, God has given us an ultimate sign and John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so he says, I gave you a sign, the true bread from heaven. John 20 shows us the empty tomb that Christ has, in fact, risen from the dead. And so why, while the crowd and the world says that believing is the result of seeing, Jesus says believing is about trusting in God's provision not about seeing. In fact, Hebrews 11 says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And in verses 32 and 33, when Jesus corrects their misunderstanding of God's life-sustaining bread, he tells them a couple of things. Number one, Moses didn't give you the bread of God. Moses didn't give it to you. In fact, my father, God, gave it to you. Secondly, the the manna wasn't true bread. Because here's why. The essence of life wasn't in the bread. It was in the provider of the bread. I think that's significant for us to hear. The essence of life for the people of Israel, what sustained them, wasn't in the bread. It was in the one who provided the bread, God. And that's exactly what Christ is saying, that he is the true bread of heaven. He is the source and the sustenance of eternal life. The bread of God gives life to the world. 
And the off, so the offer isn't just for Israel, but it is for the entire world. It's for everyone who will believe and trust. You see, God's provision is the bread which comes down out of heaven. The true bread of heaven is Jesus Christ. This is how Jesus answers their question. Verse 25. Rabbi, when did you get here? He says, I got here when I came down from heaven and I came for this purpose to give life to the world. This is how he answers their question. When did you get here? He reveals his heavenly divine origin that he himself is from the father. And so while the manna sustained Israel physically, the true bread will sustain God's people eternally. You see, the peril of unbelief for the crowd and for us, is missing the true life-sustaining bread of God, Jesus Christ. Missing that He is the one who grants eternal life. In fact, He is the only one who grants eternal life. And that's the climax of of verse 35 here in John chapter 6. The climax is seen when Jesus said to them, I am the bread of God. Life. He who comes to me won't hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Here we see the assurance of faith in Christ. Jesus invokes divine language, and he speaks in the style of, of deity. When he says, I am the bread of life, these are the words that God used when he was declaring to Moses his name and identity before Moses. In Exodus 3.6 and in Exodus 3.14, when God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. In the Greek text, it's the same construction for the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. The same exact words. Jesus reaches back to God's identity of himself to his servant Moses. And he calls that identity for himself and claims it for himself. Saying, I am the very bread of life. I am the sustaining presence. I want to quickly walk through, I think, four implications that we need to understand from verse 35. The first one is this. When he says, I am the bread of life, he's saying, I am able by my power to provide for your physical needs in a miraculous way. Because he's using what he has just done in chapter 6, verses 1 through 15, and multiplying the bread to feed 5,000. Secondly, I think he's saying, I'm able to satisfy your deepest spiritual hunger. In fact, not that he is... Able, not that he's just able to satisfy our deepest spiritual hunger, but that no one else can in the way that he can, that he alone is able. There is no substitute for him as the bread of life. Thirdly, that God who provided then continues providing now. In other words, what he's saying is the same God that provided for the people of Israel through Moses and the manna, he is at work still providing now. And I would add that today he is still at work providing for the needs of his people. He is still at work providing for the needs of every one of us daily as we seek him and walk with him. He seeks to give us, gives us strength and leads us and teaches us how to walk in obedience. 
And fourthly, when he says, I am the bread of life, it equals this. I am the bringer of life to the spiritually dead. Those who have not eaten of this bread are spiritually dead. But those who eat of the bread that I give, they will live for eternity. And so when he says, I am the bread of life, he's not saying that he is a bread. He uses the definite article, I am the bread of life. There's no substitute for the bread of Christ. And the point is that Jesus knows us in the sense that he knows all about us through the incarnation. He knows all about us as creator. We are created in the image of God and our souls hunger deeply for relationship with God. And Jesus meets us there and says, I give you the food that your soul hungers for. And the food that our soul hungers for is this relation with God the Father. And it comes through Jesus as the bread of life. Think about Colossians 1.16, for by him... All things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. See, the promise of satisfaction is met. For the one who comes to Jesus in spiritual hunger will no longer hunger because Jesus will satisfy the hunger of our souls. You know, people today, they try to substitute a bread for the bread. But when Jesus speaks of his being the bread, he's speaking of what is absolutely essential for eternal life. I want us to see that it's absolutely essential for eternal life. He is the bread, not a bread. Ken Mansfield, the United States manager for Apple Records, way back in the day when It was the Beatles label. He tells about his wonderful times with the Beatles before they broke up. Things went downhill, though, after they broke up. And in the mid-1980s, he hit rock bottom. But it was through a woman that he met and fell in love with that he found Christ. Before committing his life to Christ, he said that billboards and magazines were his, his Bible. Record charts were his God. And prestigious positions, his purpose. The holy grail for him was was a Grammy. And the best table at the Brown Derby was the promised land. After his conversion, he realized how hollow the way of the Beatles had been compared to the way of Christ. They, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are the authors of the map I needed for my journey, he wrote. I needed a chart, a a journal with clear directions, a log to refer to, a guidebook wherein the commands could speak to my wondering spirit. I needed a book so powerful that its very words could bring, uh, could burn a living message into my heart. I needed the irrefutable holy word of God, the Father Almighty, the creator of the very seas that I was lost upon. He needed him in order to, to ground him and, and to help him trust and know that Christ was one who brought satisfaction in life, true satisfaction, not just a bread, but the bread. You see, the bread of the world won't eternally satisfy the needs of our souls. The need of our soul is to be given life. And for that, we need Jesus, the bread of God. The second promise 
Second promise we see in the assurance of faith in Christ is the promise of eternal life. In verses 37 and 38, this really is the protection and security for believers in Christ. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. We see God's sovereignty and salvation here in verse 37, that all that the Father gives me will come to me. And those that come that the Father has given me, I won't cast them out. Instead, he, he brings them to himself and, and he loses none. It's a tremendous picture of the gracious gift of salvation through Christ. And we see this work of the Father and the Son together in tandem where Christ is depending upon the Father. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You know, there are many who reject Christ as the bread of life, thinking that they, they only need a bread of life and that Christ is only a bread of life. But you see, all who, all who call on God and, and hear God and respond to God, put their faith and trust in Him. He says, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. And as verse 40 says, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds and believes will have eternal life. And so the call, the call is to behold and believe. How do we behold? How do we look upon Christ? We look upon Christ through his word through fellowship within the church as we have sung about this morning, through doing life on life and walking together, holding one another accountable. It's through submitting ourselves to the truth of Scripture as He's revealed Himself in and through Scripture. The third promise we see is the promise of resurrection. There's the the promise of satisfaction in Christ. There's the, the promise of eternal life for all who believe upon Him. And then there's the promise of resurrection this really looks at the perseverance of the saints the the security of the believer there's coming a day when the kingdom of the world will be swallowed up by the kingdom of god and all who have believed will be raised on the last day verse 39 this is the will of him who sent me that all that he has given me i lose nothing right but raise it up on the last day. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty four, the Apostle Paul says, But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning as we see the hope that God has laid out for us in Christ, our motives, our very motives at the heart are challenged as we come to Christ and we we ask this question, am I hungering for Christ? We see the danger and the peril of unbelief that the crowd says believing is a result of seeing. But Jesus says, no, believing is about trusting in God's provision. 
God has provided and are we trusting in his provision? We see the assurance of our faith and three promises in this passage. The first promise is the promise of satisfaction. There is satisfaction in Christ like no other. He will satisfy our souls eternally. And he is the only one who can satisfy our souls eternally. The promise of eternal life. And we also have the promise of resurrection. All who believe in him will be carried out on that day and raised to life on that day. Let me ask you this morning, have you found yourself hungering for the bread of the world instead of the bread of God? Do you find yourself currently hungering for the bread of the world instead of the bread of God? Are you working for things which don't matter and forsaking the eternal things which do matter? And are are we hungering for Christ? Are we looking to Christ as the the bread of life, and hungering for what he gives, complete satisfaction. I want to close this in prayer, and I invite us this morning as we, uh, as we prepare to partake of the table, the symbol of bread, Christ's body being given that we might have life. I want to invite us to search within and confess those things in our lives that are hindering us from walking in in fellowship with Christ. And I also want to challenge us this morning as we consider our hunger for Christ, let it be uh, a hunger that that we want to walk with him. And even as we come to the table this morning, there's a there's a deep hunger to have this fellowship with Christ as we partake of the Lord's Supper of the elements that would drive us to worship him in truth. Let me pray. Father, as we close out our time in your word, pray that you will um, give us your grace this morning to walk with you and to experience the goodness that you have for us, to know you more completely and more fully. And I pray, God, that you would lead us in the way of everlasting life, that you would even reveal those things to us that we must confess before you in order to walk with you more uh, more obediently. And Lord, as we come to the table, I, I pray that you would purify our own hearts and our minds this morning, that as we come, we come with clean hands and pure hearts, lifting our souls up to you and to you alone. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?